This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about the law and how it affects you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Think of me as your personal law professor as we navigate the big legal questions of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. Hey, everybody. Today, we are joined again by Stephen Marsh. He is a novelist and essayist and the author of, among other works, On Writing and Failure, The Next Civil War, which we dedicated an episode to about a year and a half ago. He has also written features and essays for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Esquire, The Walrus, and many others. He has collaborated with Artificial Intelligence on the first AI-generated novel reviewed by The New York Times, Death of an Author. His most recent novel, The Last Election, was co-written with Andrew Yang, and it is the topic of our chat today. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. With that, Stephen, thank you so much for coming back. I loved our conversation over a year ago on Passing Judgment. You have a new book. I'm excited to talk to you and excited to talk about the book. Great. Fantastic. So let's begin with The Last Election. You co-authored this book with former presidential candidate Andrew Yang. I want to honestly recommend it to all of the listeners. It focuses on a centrist third-party candidate who is gaining ground and plot by the Joint Chiefs to seize power. Can you tell us why this is the story that you and Andrew Yang decided to tell? Well, um, Andrew Andrew called me up, and he, uh, of course, is extremely worried about the state of American democracy, and for good reason. And he also is very concerned about it from a kind of insider's perspective, like he's been in the belly of the beast. You know, when I wrote The Next Civil War, which is what drew him to me, I didn't really have a chapter on the American political system, like electoral political system, because I really didn't think it was possible to get a kind of reliable information about it. Like everyone that I talked to was either on one side or the other. And, you know, I really based that book on some kind of like, it had to be sort of beyond dispute what was in that book for me to publish it. It had to be a model that I could defend. So I didn't really write about electoral politics. But Andrew was like, why don't I tell you what how electoral politics works and you and you write it down and we'll write a thriller about um about what the collapse of an american about what the collapse of the american republic would look like so you got incredible access behind the scenes of a former presidential candidate and his staff and i've read an interview with you where you talked about access journalism are there some things that you heard or people that you met that even in your years of observing American politics, you thought, no, that is shocking. The reason I wrote the book really is because, I mean, I said to Andrew, like, we can do this, but, you know, there are two conditions. One is you have to return my phone calls um, right away because that, you know, I know, he's an important guy going off doing important things and it could very easily get lost. Um, and the other one is I want the truth and I want you to have everybody that you know tell me the truth. And then you can cut whatever you want after, right? Like his name's on the book as much as mine. So, you know, anything it, it, you can cut whatever you want, but I want to know um, like what, 
how things work. And so I really did get kind of an unprecedented look behind the scenes. I mean, you know, I also got really unique access to like, you know, opposition researchers, which were just, like, I mean, they were incredible. When they talk to you frankly about their jobs, it's just, it's just so chilling because they, you know, they tear people down and, like, I mean, I remember this is one, st- there are, there are a million stories like this. I could go on forever, but like, like, just to give you one example, I was talking to an opposition researcher and I was like, he kept using the phrase, well, we'll unload the book on him here. And like, like uh, in terms of like, when would you launch scandals against people? And when would you try to, you know, when would you use the gathered material that you have? And he used this phrase, unload the book like 10 times. And then I was like, hold on a minute. When you say unload the book, is there an actual book? And he was like, oh, yeah, there's a book on every major politician in America. And I was like, can I see this book? Can I see a book like of anyone? And he was like, well, they're illegal to own because and they're illegal to distribute because they're slander. But they got me a copy of one and it was everything bad this person had ever done. It was every tweet that could be skewed one way. It was people they dated in high school. It, it was... um you know, every real estate transaction and the people involved in it, everyone they sat down next to at a party who'd said something racist or anti-Semitic. I mean, it was extraordinary. And and so when I saw that book, I was like, oh, America, re-, like as bad as I thought things were in the next civil war, like Mike's like, who could survive such a thing? I mean, if, if you had a book written about you like that or I did, who like who would who would survive that kind of attention? So, yeah, it was it was pretty much being shocked all the time talking to these guys. I want to bring back our conversation in a moment to who would survive this type of attention. But I also wanted to ask you, why did they think that the books were slander? Slander means false statements. Were there true? Well, it's all uh, it's all alleged material, right? Like it's all like it's a list of what things are there, what things are not like some of it's right. Some of it's not right. So if you disseminate it, well, also I think it's, they don't want it disseminated for lots of reasons, but uh, that was, that was his take. I don't actually know. Like I, I don't, I don't know why it would be illegal, but I think things in it are probably not true and disseminating them would be slander. Or at least expose somebody to unwanted liability and you don't want this to be public at all. Yeah. But I want to pick up on what you said in the sense of who would expose themselves to this. And this is something that when I teach a campaigns class, I talk about a lot with my students, which is that the job interview, one, doesn't seem to match the job, and two, seems to be quite grueling. I've read a little bit about what you've said on this topic, but what type of person do you think we now have running for not just president, but higher office in America? Well, um, like just to give you like the first time I asked Andrew, I was like, okay, we're going to tell me what the three most important days on a campaign trail are. Um, and he was first quarterly fundraising report, second quarterly fundraising report, third quarterly fundraising report. That was his answer to me. And as far as I could tell from the people that I talked to, the mechanics of campaigning were financial and attention. So the people who are really have a shot at the presidency uh, to, to me uh, and to Andrew, I would say um, are celebrity billionaires. And I think, I think America is entering a period where just because you can jump so many levels, like it's like starting a video game on level 30, the the amount of attention that you can gather and the amount of money that you can get, you can get with that attention sort of are the name of the game. 
and that and that really and it, there's a number of mechanics to that like why that's true but it's uh but you know that that to me is the dark answer is it's like basically people who are already celebrity billionaires and don't have to worry about money well can we talk a little bit about why that is true because i've also read you talking about Citizens United. And that was, of course, the 2010 decision where the court said that corporations can spend unlimited sums to try and elect candidates because money is speech, which it said, which it said back in 1976. Corporations are people and money spent independent of candidates cannot be corrupting as a legal matter. And I know you've thought a lot about dark money. So I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about how you think money plays a role in our system. Well, I was fascinated by how dark money works, like the mechanics of it. And, you know, like when, when I was talking to Andrew and all these guys who are, you know, I was like, so when people are giving you this money, they then, you know, when you set up these um, super PACs and you communicate, you who tells them what to do with the money? How, do you, how does your campaign tell them what to do with your money? And they were like, oh, they don't talk to them at all. And I was like, I'm sorry. And, and they were like, yeah, no, you, you, it's fully illegal to talk to the super PAC. And I was like, well, there's got to be like some way to have like midnight phone calls. And they were like, no, um, those are, that's for people in rural places and they get caught and they go to jail sometimes. They certainly get fined huge amounts of money. Um, we like at the national level, um, it's much more traditional to work out things like you release a press release, um, in the middle of the night saying we're going to concentrate on these counties. The, Super PAC then knows that that's what you want and go, goes and does it. And also when they're making ads, one of the things that I found funniest was like the, they can't, you know, you can't give video data to the super PAC if you're the campaign, because that would be a violation. So instead they'll like put footage, like, like coverage of their candidate doing things like eating dinner with a family, walking beside streams, climbing mountains, etc. on YouTube for, you know, 15 minutes in the middle of the night, just so that the, the group can grab it down. They actually caught Ted Cruz's version of this. So like, like Democrats actually caught Ted Cruz's version of this. So you can actually go and see Ted Cruz's 10 minute, 12 minute um, video of him doing banal things uh, that, that went public. So there's this incredible legal loophole machinery that they're constantly navigating around. But uh, I mean, the ultimate truth is the amount of money that's required to, to have a campaign is so catastrophically high that it's, I mean, it's inherently corrupting, I, not necessarily in the sense of people are bought by money, but that the drive to money is the one first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth concern of American politicians, right? Like everything else is, is, is an accident. And when you think about that, it explains a lot about American politics, actually. Like it, it explains a lot about like Elise Stefanik or, or, or people is like, they are in the fundraising business. Like they're not in the policy business. They're in the fundraising business. And so the tools that they, the, the politics that they espouse, the positions they take are the ones that they think can raise them money. And, and, it, and it's kind of that simple. So can you talk to us a little bit more about this? I actually started my career at a nonprofit that was largely focused on campaign finance reform. And so I find these issues fascinating. And I have my own thoughts on how to reform the system. But you mentioned, you know, this is how we get Representative Elise Stefanik. And you 
mentioned something that I thought was quite profound, that we have fundraisers as opposed to policymakers, at least some of the time. From your vantage point, what are specific ways, not just in who gets elected, but in what they do once they're elected, that you see this is just a response to moneyed interest. This is how you get and keep your job, which is you have to be responsive to, as you know, something called the donor class as opposed to the voting class. Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, it's not necessarily even the donor class as a group. Like, you know, I had to, I, I, it, because, you know, the fundraising mechanism is that you go out and you get the amount of money that you can out of groups. So like senior politicians, like the really good p- politicians, I mean, there were some people who are like Kamala Harris apparently is the absolute greatest at this go to, to like groups of 200. They give a 10 minute speech. They answer questions for 15 minutes. Everyone in the room gives the maximum amount uh, for the donation. And they do that sometimes four or five times a day. Right. And like, and they can, and they can really get that and they can get that system rolling really well because the reason you want to get donors is not just the money, but that people who give money to you, are invested in spreading your word and in voting for you, right? And 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 that creates um, a, a double incentive to get the donor. So uh, as opposed to the very rich people who are funding super PACs and so on, like this mechanism of fundraising becomes the dominant thing. So what what you have to say is what is going to please rooms of a hundred people who are going to ask you questions about it, and that's you know not necessarily really good policy. And I think when you like when you look at someone like Elise Stefanik, like what she said, what she, why she holds those positions, the the policy positions that she holds, even if if you can even call them policy positions, is because it makes it very easier for her to go into rooms and rile people up and get them to give money, right? And that's corrupting in a whole other. It, it's not like people being bought off. It's that they these people are not fundamentally in the business of policymaking or government. They are fundamentally in show business and monetizing show business. And that just creates a whole set of incentives that are totally unrelated to the um, flourishing of the United States, shall we say. Right. And 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 that that to me is when I looked at the deepening, like the, the actual mechanics of it, what, what's a bit more extraordinary? Like I'm a Canadian. Right. So like in Canada, politicians resign all the time on principle. Right. Like if, if they're like, like they, their party changes, they don't like what they're doing. They resign. They go back to private life. Right. Um, and that's a perfectly normal, totally honorable um, way to exist. Right. Like and it also means that it also puts a check on governments. Right. Because it's like their people can leave. No one ever resigns in the United States. They the show must go on. Um, and, and, that, and that's the first rule of show business, because that that is what they are in. They are fundamentally in show business. I think it's fascinating that you zeroed in on this different definition of corruption, because as you know, the Supreme Court for so long, and I think this really has been a disaster for our system, has defined corruption as just basically bribery, quid pro quo. And as a result, if corruption is defined narrowly and corruption is the only government interest sufficient to withstand limiting contributions, for instance, then we have a problem. Now, again, I know you've thought a lot about dark money, which is very generally speaking money that's 
not disclose, that by definition, there's no transparency. It goes through various cloaking devices like nonprofits or different political action committees. If you were to wave a magic wand and say, here's how we change our campaign finance system in America so that we don't have a show business creation, we instead have policymakers, what would you do? Like open primaries, one. Right. Like this is not this, this, this lowers partisanship markedly everywhere that it is done. It leads to moderates in power almost immediately. Like that's what happened in Alaska. It leads to people. It leads to people who are actually interested in government it, to a, a, a massive extent. Um, it is totally not in the interest of either party to have open primaries. Um, but it's, it's certainly in the interest of the United States of America. For there to be open primaries. And similarly, I mean, very obviously, just like campaign spending limits, like, were, like existed before, before the, before the Supreme Court made its terrible decision, right? Um, I, I think, you know, I, I think you're very right to say that, I mean, because there is corruption on the level of bribery, but that to me is actually not, um, not really the problem. The problem is that the system as it is set up, it creates these incredibly perverse incentives. And, you know, one of the things I'm quite proud of in the book is that we see the main characters, like the heroes, being dragged down into those incentives. Because I think when you live in a system with incentives, it, it ruins good people. Um, you know, bad people in a system with good incentives do much better than good people in a system with bad incentives. And the, the political system as it exists in the United States is absolutely, I, I would say, defined by increasingly poor incentives. I would also go back to the Supreme Court's decision in 1976 that money is speech and look at that decision as one that had profound consequences for our elections and our politics. Because if money is truly speech and we hold the freedom of speech dear, then it should be very hard to limit it. And that's why we have this endless treadmill where people get on and they can't get off. They have to keep fundraising and because there are no expenditure limits. And then there are all these different ways, both direct and indirect of trying to raise money, as you talked about. And it it truly boggles the mind to think of how different our system would be if we made that one change. I mean, it's a huge and profound change, but it is really one change. I mean, don't even think about open primaries, even though, of course, that's an important reform. Just think about saying we can limit the amount of money you spend. We can limit the amount of money you give in a real way, not whatever occurs now. And I think you have an entirely different political system. Well, I think also, you know, I mean, I I was really shocked by how dark the dark money is. I mean, we somebody bought the last two American presidential elections and nobody knows who. I mean, no, the New York Times doesn't know. The Washington Post doesn't know. And it, that's not out of laziness or, I mean, if they can't figure it out, it cannot be figured out. We know that there's foreign money in it, right? Like we, we know that there's, there have been cases of foreign money, um, being put into it. I mean, I've actually argued here in Canada that we should start buying American elections. Like I wrote that in, in, in the newspaper of record here because it's so easy to do. Right. Like, I mean, it's so like it would it would take nothing to buy a congressional race. It's all, it's about three million dollars. It's very, very cheap. Um, and for Canada's national security interest, it's it's really 
pretty an amazing bargain at the moment, and and it, absolutely possible to do. Uh, it really, you know, I would say that it, I think it was the combination of the you know Citizens United, but also the killing of the fairness doctrine in in eighty six. That it's the combination of those two where you create a media environment around politics as entertainment, and then you create like limitless money into it, and it just creates the really a, a, a kind of economic need for drama, right? For like for for constantly raising the stakes of politics because that's the only way that politicians can raise money. I mean, Democrats are going to raise money. I mean, the abortion case is actually a really perfect example of how you have a terrible policy decision that absolutely serves the needs of both parties. Like they can fundraise off of that forever. And they, and and there's a reason that policy problems don't get solved. They just get exacerbated. Um, it's because there's like a, an actually a quite enormous motive for both parties not to solve them. I mean, what we're seeing on the border today is like absolute classic example of that, right? Where it's like, literally, we're just not going to solve it because it's going to make, it's going to make fundraising so much easier for us over the next year. The thing that's so interesting to me is that has become now, I think, quite transparent, where both parties need that issue, and they need to run on that issue, and not just run as we've been talking about fundraise on that issue. And I can't stop thinking about, you know, that old adage that politics is entertainment for ugly people. And it's said with kind of right. <laughs> a wink and a nod. But I just last week on last week's episode had a conversation with a presidential historian who's written literally dozens of books on the presidency. And he said, and it's so stunning to me, the same thing that you're saying, it's entertainment. And I do want in our remaining time to continue to focus on the book, The Last Election. And I think the conversation we've had about money and politics has been truly elucidating in thinking through why that does have such a substantial effect on what we see happening today. And I want to talk about other aspects of democracy. We began this conversation where you were talking about electoral mechanics, essentially, and that that's something that you hadn't really touched on in your previous book about um, our impending civil war, which we had a a different episode dedicated to that book. What are some things that you think we could do now to try and shore up our democracy? Well, I mean, you know, the basic principle of the basic idea behind the book is that the electoral college system is so threadbare and so ragged that it could collapse. Really, I think every election is going to be a very serious test for it from now on. Um, you know, the mechanism that we talk about is a contingent election. So that's if, if no, if no party reaches 273 electoral college votes, this happens automatically on January 6th and it goes to a, a, a process called, um, the electoral college. And that goes, that's automatic and it goes to house delegate votes. So each delegation from each state in the house gets one vote, which means that it will be Republican forever and ever. Amen. They would win every example of that that has existed. Um, and so that means that you could absolutely have a government that was 100% constitutional, but illegitimate and, and obviously illegitimate to any common sense interpretation. 
that seems to me um, an extremely dangerous scenario, but one that is eminently plausible given the state of denialism, given the state of you know the solicitors general that have been elected in 2022. It is a very real risk, I think, that the U.S. Constitution is about to permit um, an electoral decision that will be self-evidently illegitimate and entirely constitutional. That's I mean, that's the nightmare. That's how you get into genuine tyrannies. Right. And so that is that I put that at the top of the list, if I could say. On the other hand, how to reform that? I I mean, I really don't know. Like, it seems to me the I'm not sure I see the appetite for reform in the United States. I don't I don't see it from either party. They keep playing chicken with this and they keep they keep ratcheting up the stakes and they don't want to calm it down. It's almost like they're willfully hurtling towards this end. Um, and, and, and the reasons for that are, are, are unclear to me, um, except maybe just simply a, a, a lack of faith in democracy that's emerging for reasons that are, are murky to me and, and, are, and are actually very hard to see. But yeah, I mean, like the electoral reforms that are necessary are on the grandest possible level, right? I mean, like this, this system is very rickety. And, and could fall over really, you know, to me at any election now. We talked about this when we last had a conversation about your book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, where, and this has really struck with me for over a year since our conversation about how we as Americans adhere to the Constitution almost as if it is our Bible and that we don't really think about the ways in which it might be a sinking ship. And I think you just touched on that theme again. But do you think there's any appetite for constitutional reform? I know we've just talked about the Electoral College, but it does seem to me that we're clinging to the Constitution and just arguing about you're interpreting it the wrong way, but not having a real think about whether or not it should be restructured. And as somebody who teaches constitutional law about nine months of the year, I, I try and spend a lot of time thinking about that. Well, I mean, Jefferson said that any constitution that lasted longer than 19 years was a contract with the dead, right? He, I mean, he said it was not a living document because you were making fundamentally, you know, there's the difference between a religious covenant and a political covenant or a secular covenant is that a religious covenant is made with generations that are not there. Right. I mean, that's like Moses stands up at the, at the red sea and he says, this is a contract we're making with God for every, and the words he uses everyone who is here and everyone who is not here. And that means that you're making a contract for your children and your children's children, all the people who aren't there, but that's not the way a secular document is supposed to work. It's supposed to be a covenant with the living. And the U.S. Constitution, a work of great genius. I, I mean, people sometimes think I'm insulting the U.S. Constitution. Like, nothing could be farther than the truth. It is a, it's a work of sublime intelligence and, and vision, a, 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 an incredible document. But it's an 18th century document. And we're living in the 21st century. And, you know, France is in its fifth republic, right? I, I mean, the American Republic has lasted a long time. A, a really superhuman length of time. But every document needs, uh, you know, refreshing or not even refreshing, but needs rewriting. I mean, I can think of uh, nothing 
healthier than a constitutional convention, except the problem is, would America start again? Right. That's the that's that's the other question that really um, that really has to be asked. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think the thing about the Constitution is that it is losing meaning. Right. Like it's, it, when you look at when you look at things like the Second Amendment and you're trying to interpret them in the terms of the 18th century well, no, or updated. I mean, it doesn't really make any sense to try and interpret this document from the 18th century when the technology and every fact of life has so utterly changed over the course of 250 years. And yeah, I mean, that seems to me like it, it's extraordinary as a foreigner. You know, you go and talk to like Texas separatists or like these ultra right wing people and they worship the Constitution. And then you go and talk to New York Times editors in you know Manhattan offices and they worship the Constitution. And they don't when you ask them, like, what is it? The, the, the answers that they give are words like freedom, which are not super useful. You know, they're, they sound great and they're very powerful, but like when you're actually trying to live with them and try to understand what they mean, they get very vague very quickly. And that's like, I think the U.S. Constitution is a sort of vague penumbra of freedom. And, and but it, it, what it means in practice is actually almost impossible to say at this point to me. But of course, I'm not a constitutional law expert. I, I, I But, it, you know, it seems to me like the interpretations are increasingly just partisan, which is a sign of breakdown. Well, and to your previous point, when you use originalism, when you use history and tradition to interpret these terms that obviously have meaning that changes over time or should change over time, then it is tradition enforcing, meaning whatever the tradition was at the time, and we can think back to the Dobbs decision that erased reproductive choice from the Constitution. Yeah. We can talk about the Bruin decision. You just mentioned the Second Amendment, that it will make it more difficult for cities and states to implement certain gun control measures, that when you place the right and when it was born and when it stopped growing essentially at the same place, then that brings us back to a society where, for instance, I mean, not to be too hyperbolic, but if you locate women's rights at a place when women were either viewed as property or not full citizens or marital rape was not a crime, then that can have a, as I said, a kind of tradition enforcing consequence. Oh, yeah. But I think to me, it's more like the you know the negotiation between tradition and novelty like that happens in every legal system and it's and and that that negotiation goes on forever but when you have situations where like with the with the second amendment decision where there where you have people like preparing law briefs based on newspaper reports from the 18th century that you're trying to re, you know you're trying to re reach through what what was allowed what weapons were allowed in the 18th century by newspapers that creates a situation of absurdity and absurdity and the law is very dangerous. Like when, when it, when it does not pass the test of like basic common sense and reason, like it, it, that, I mean, that creates real dangers. I mean, one thing I really learned reading the next civil writing, the next civil war and researching like all the other countries that had had civil war is that when the legal system breaks down and people stop believing that it's fair and stop believing that it can provide justice, I mean, it is so hard to walk back from that. I mean, it's just so hard to get to get to get out from under that that sense. I mean, when you've lost, 
equality under the law, you have lost, I mean, you've really lost a sacred thing, you know, like that. It, 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 and it's, it, that's when things get dangerous. Well, and I think we could have a different conversation about the specific places where perhaps we have lost equality and or freedom and things are getting dangerous. But I know we don't have unlimited time. And I want to focus in as we end our conversation for one moment on the 2024 candidates and something that you wrote in the Washington Post that I read as I was preparing for this interview, where you said Donald Trump's most enduring contribution to American life will probably be making assaults on the press central to Republican politics. It struck me because there are so many places where I think Donald Trump will have an enduring contribution to American life. And I'm hoping you can unpack that comment a little bit about why you zeroed in on essentially making it comfortable, normal, predictable to criticize the press. Yeah. I mean, part of it is that he's just shredding institutions and the pleasure of shredding institutions like has a wide appetite in the public. I just am, I'm fascinated by the way that other politicians try and do it. Ron DeSantis tries to do it. And, and other people like, um, what's her name? Lake Carrie Lake in Arizona. Um, and now it's become perfectly normal for people to, you know, if you're a press person and you're at one of these things, you're going to be attacked. Like you're going to be not necessarily physically assaulted, but certainly, uh, attacked verbally and so on. And I, I mean, I think, you know, the reason that that is so new is that it, it really, uh, it really creates a kind of antipathy. And I remember talking to one of the, one of the, uh, it, um, opposition researchers that I talked to for this book. And he said, it will never work for any of the other Republicans. And I was like, why? Why? Like, and he was like, you have to understand that Trump is hardcore pornography and they're trying to imitate it. They're but they can't quite manage it. Like they just don't have, people can tell it's an act and he he's unique in the, in the way that he can bring hatred um, to crowds and the, the Republicans are imitating it, but they don't really do a very good job. They just don't have the, the viciousness, you know, uh, that, that, that you need to do it. And so I, I think it will be his, I think it's one of his major contributions. I mean, obviously it's a very dark, we're, we're t as we're talking, like over half of Americans today would support a president who has just had to pay $83 million in damages for rape. And it may legally not be allowed to run because he's fomented into an insurrection. The reason that that would have so much support in the, in America, such widespread support is a, a, a very, a very dark question to ask. But I do think the resistance to the press is kind of at its core. He wants to attack the refs. He wants to attack the refs of America, right? The, the courts, the media, any institution that sort of stands above the fray, he wants to drag down into the fray. And the, the, the amazing thing is there's not a lot of ways to get out of it. I, I remember very, I, very briefly, but like the, the, um, uh, Boris Johnson in England, like when he was an EU columnist and he would attack the EU all the time, the, uh, there was an EU bureaucrat who said something very interesting, which was he said, you know, 
we're right and we give arguments back and our arguments are right, but we're not funny. And he's funny. And so he always wins. And I think that's what Trump has demonstrated is that entertainment wins. You know, that's what, like he he's the reality television president. And he, like that, that is much more powerful than anyone in policy. Well, on that note, it is not a surprise that you are the author of The Next Civil War and The Last Election. Um, Stephen, I always love these conversations. I learn a lot. I get to think about a lot of issues from a different angle. And I'm so appreciative of your time. Oh, thank you. I love having these conversations, too. I think they're wonderful. 